Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from the World. This is David Robert Farmerie. This week's episode, Giving Thanks. As I was pondering this week's episode, you know, I was struck by the fact that Thanksgiving will be just a few days away, and following on its heels will be the seemingly ubiquitous Christmas season. In honor of this, I tried to think of a story that would exemplify the celebration of Thanksgiving, but there really weren't any, at least not specifically, that if I told them would take more than just a few minutes to tell. So instead, I have decided to share several stories intermingled with thoughts about the pending celebrations, both Thanksgiving and the Christmas season. Now, depending on where you live in the world, you may not be affected by the holiday or the celebration of Thanksgiving because that's pretty much an American holiday. However, wherever you live in the world, well, for the most part, I shouldn't say wherever, but in most places in the world, regardless of your spiritual or religious beliefs, we are all affected in one way or another by the Christmas season. And if you think that we're not, you know what? The day after Thanksgiving, when the Christmas season officially starts, try to find a parking space. But I digress. So anyhow, Thanksgiving for me has always been my favorite, my very favorite holiday, and more so than Christmas, or even, believe it or not, even more than my birthday. Because it is a day of true celebration for its namesake, which is, yeah, a day of giving thanks. Even as a child, it was a day filled with people, at least in my family it was. Primarily, the day was filled with family, but oftentimes there would be a stranger or even two at the dinner table, a stranger to all of us, except, of course, for the member of the family who invited them simply because they had nowhere else to go. Food was truly abundant. As kids, we all gathered and played the day away. But as an adult, again, at least for me, that role changed significantly now to the one who cooked the meal. And as someone who loves to cook and even somewhat prides myself in being proficient at it, cooking Thanksgiving dinner has become an honor for me. It is the greatest gift that I can give to others to honor my thanks for them sharing pieces of their lives with me. Now, I have to admit here and interject this little caveat that actually since I, I got married, I am forbidden to cook the majority of Thanksgiving dinner, and it's for two reasons. The one reason is because my wife has always cooked Thanksgiving dinner, and, and like me, that is her way of giving back to the family and to friends. But the other reason, and I'd like to say it's the underlying reason, but you know, I think it's really the predominant reason, is that the first year I was here, I insisted on making Thanksgiving dinner. And finally, Stephanie acquiesced and said, go ahead. And so I did. And part of my Thanksgiving dinner has always been to make candied yams. Well, here in the South, yeah, they don't do candied yams. They do sweet potatoes, but it is kind of sweet potatoes with 
they're kind of pureed and kind of like the consistency of baby food. And then they put those little mini marshmallows on the top and they put it in a broiler and they get them all kind of crusty like a, a fire roasted marshmallow and they serve them. Well, anyhow, my first year here, I refused to make those. I know that was arrogant on me, but I refused. I said that is absolutely sacrilegious to the yam, to the sweet potato. So I made candied yams. And I have to admit, my candied yams are to die for. But anyhow, I put everything on the table. Everybody sat down, and there were probably about 30 of us. And all of a sudden, it was almost in unison that people started saying, well, where are the sweet potatoes? And I said, they're right there. They said, no, no, the sweet potatoes. I said, those are sweet potatoes. Those are candied yams. They said, no, no, those aren't sweet potatoes. Well, my wife had to actually get up from the table and spend time and make the sweet potatoes the way that they were accustomed to having them made before we could eat dinner. And so it was unanimous by family vote by all 30 members of the family that were there that day that David can never cook Thanksgiving dinner again. So anyhow, I don't. But all of this thinking about Thanksgiving has put me in mind of so many experiences. But, you know, there's one in particular And it will actually be in an upcoming podcast episode, but I want to touch on it briefly now because I think it's kind of appropriate. In fact, I think it's very appropriate. This happened a few years ago while I was working on the In Search of America documentary. And I was in southern Louisiana in the heart of Cajun country. And I had gone this particular day to make a photograph of a young woman and her son, Angel and Everett. Angel is a single mother. And having grown up myself with a single mother, I know how difficult it can be on many fronts. Let me back up for a minute just to give you some background and context for the story I'm about to tell. I originally first met Angel when I was making portraits of the Cajun Mardi Gras costumes that are a tradition of the annual Cajun Mardi Gras Parade and Celebration, which, by the way, is much different than the Mardi Gras Parade and the Mardi Gras Celebration that we all think of in New Orleans. After getting to know Angel that day, and we had spent quite a bit of time together and quite a bit of time talking, I felt the need to offer to make a portrait of her and her son at some point in the future. And now this day had come for me to fulfill my offer, and my promise. Angel suggested that we do the portrait sitting at her parents' house in Opelousa, Louisiana, which is about 40 minutes uh, north of Lafayette. Anyhow, when I arrived at the house, I was greeted initially by her parents and by Angel, and her parents I had never met before. So I went into the house. I set up the portable studio in their living room after moving several pieces of furniture out of the way. And as I finished making the portraits, probably about an hour or two hours later, her mother stopped me as I was going out the door to pack the the equipment back into the expedition, and she asked me if I would stay for dinner. I agreed to the offer, and wow, what a treat it was because she had made gumbo with duck. Even now, when I think back to that meal, my knees get a weakness that is absolutely wonderful. 
Now, I will leave the details of this evening as it unfolded for the future episode. But for now, I want to tell you this, that over the course of just a few hours from the time that I arrived at her parents' house until we finished eating the meal, I had gone from being a complete stranger, to her parents at least, to being like a very close and dear friend of the entire family. This was due to several factors, but the most important of these factors, at least I believe, was the acceptance on my part to break bread with them, to sit at their table and eat with the family. To this day, the entire Ballard family holds a very special place in my heart. In fact, as I talk about them now, there is such a feeling that wells up within my chest and it is because of what I experienced and because of the bond that was created that day. The bond that was created was a bond that transcended the ordinary. It was an engagement into authenticity with others. Many years ago, when I was working on my very first documentary project, as well as my first book titled A Mountain Dignity, I spent a considerable amount of time in the Appalachia region of southeastern Kentucky. And there, too, I made friendships that, to this day, hold a presence in my heart. One of those relationships, and one of the most amazing of them all, was the relationship I developed with a woman by the name of Verna Mae Sloan. She was the first person that I really connected with in Appalachia. At the time that I met her, she was in her 80s. She was the author of two books and countless magazine articles. The first day that we met, it was sitting in her kitchen, just the two of us, while she regaled me with stories of Appalachia. That day, I had built a trust with her, enough of a trust that she had agreed to allow me to make a portrait of her a week later. When I had returned a week later to make the portrait of Verna May, she was at her other house. It was her childhood home, which had by then been set aside as an educational place to teach the younger generations about their heritage. And Verna May was one of the teachers. Anyhow, I arrived there and there were dozens and dozens of young school kids just running them up, running around everywhere outside of the house. I made my way through them, weaving in and out as I lugged load after load of equipment into the tiny house, then set it all up. As I made the portrait of Verna May, I kept noticing Verna May looking towards the front door, which was just over my right shoulder. And I had it closed to keep the light, the outside light, from spilling in, but evidently, There were children opening it a crack so that they could peek through to see what was going on inside. After I finished the portrait of Verna May, I motioned for the kids to come in. There were three of them, Wanda, Kenny, and Gary. But also their teacher came in with them in a very protective way. Her name is Suet Sloan. She was a relative of Verna May's as well as the teacher of the children. I let the kids look at the equipment and I explained what I was doing. Their curiosity was amazing to me. But then I soon realized, however, that each of the children 
were both deaf and mute. Suet kindly translated what I had to tell them as well as relay the many questions that they had for me. After about 20 minutes or so of talking back and forth, I asked the children if they would like me to make a portrait of them. They hesitated, even though it was clear that they really wanted me to do this. Suet was even more hesitant. In fact, she was really, really reluctant. You see, in the past, without exception, anyone who ever made a photograph of the people in these parts of Appalachia made the pictures to show the oddities and to show the poverty. There was truly no trust whatsoever for outsiders with cameras. As Verna May referred to them, they were broadons, the people from the outside, that is. I took my time and I explained to Suet why I was wanting to make these photographs and assured her that I would never, ever show the portrait of the children to anyone until she had seen it first and approved it. Verna May then spoke up on my behalf, which solidified the agreement to allow me to make the portrait. And once Suet agreed to let me do this, I took it one step further and I asked Suet to be in the portrait as well. Boy, you talk about reluctance. But again, she finally agreed. This portrait that I made now hangs on my bedroom wall, just to the right of my bed where I see it every morning when I wake and every night before I go to sleep. There is much apprehension on Suet's face in this portrait, but the children each carry such great dignity on their faces and the way they sit or stand. You know, from that day forward, every single time that I would return to Pippa Passes, which is the small town population, I think at the time was 97. But anyhow, this is the town where they all lived. And every time I would go back, I would pay a visit to the school and I would spend time with Suet, Wanda, Kenny, and Gary. Over time, they did their best to teach me sign language. And now, even as I tell the story, each of them remains so fresh in my heart. Again, a bond of trust and pure authenticity was born that day between complete strangers. The other great memory that I have from that whole experience was that after I had made the portrait of the children, and then I had to pack up, I had to reload the car, and by now all the other kids that had been running around had gone home. But anyhow, as I went to reload, recarry and reload all of this equipment back into the expedition, each of the kids insisted on helping me. It was like they had great joy in being able to help me carry these, these bags. And I, I remember back to Kenny especially, he was just this little bitty kid, little skinny kid, and, and he would carry my bags and he would grab them with both hands and he struggled to beat the band, but he never, ever let up. And as soon as he would finally make his way out to the truck with, the, with that bag, he would run back in and he would grab another one and he would struggle back out to the truck. But again, it gave each of them such great joy to be able to do this. And looking back on this, I truly believe that 
in their minds and in their hearts, it was their way of giving back, of giving thanks to me for making the portrait of them and for honoring them and respecting them. And what a great gift to me. Many years ago, uh, I had worked in the Yucatan Peninsula, Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula, for about nine years uh, on several different assignments and documentary projects. And in fact, my first assignment there was for a major national newspaper, and it was to do a story on the Zapatista, the revolutionaries who, just before my assignment, had tried to overthrow the Mexican government. And now they were kind of sorting things out, and uh, my part was to go and cover the peace talks. Well, anyhow, I ended up living with the Zapatista uh, for probably about six weeks, and I covered the peace talks every day, and uh, a lot came out of that. But anyhow, that was my introduction into the cultures, the various Mayan cultures throughout the peninsula, and there were a couple of really, really great things initially that came out of that assignment. And I want to stress the word initially because throughout that nine years, so many amazing opportunities presented themselves. But anyhow, these two in particular I want to talk about now. The first of these opportunities, and it just kind of came out of the blue, but you know, what I have found over the years and over my lifetime really is that you know, when we kind of focus on, on what it is that we want to do and, and start to put that into action and follow that path is all of these other things start to come up around it that, that kind of fit in seamlessly, kind of like the pieces in the puzzle. At the time of this opportunity, I was based out of uh, Yucatan State, out of the city of Merida, which is the capital city of, of Yucatan, and it's up in the very northern part of the peninsula. Anyhow, I had heard about this thing that was happening and thought, you know, that might be a great story. So I pitched it to a couple of my clients and, and one of them grabbed onto it. And so I ended up going on this assignment. And what it was is that a group of Tibetan lamas, monks, uh, had come from India, where they were now living after the exile. Uh, anyhow, they, they had come to the Yucatan and they were going to the various ancient Mayan ruins. And they were going with a traditional Mayan shaman. And at each of these Mayan sites, these Mayan ruins, which are sacred sites, is they would do traditional uh, Buddhist ceremonies. And then the, the shaman, the Mayan shaman, would do traditional Mayan ceremonies that have been you know, played out for, for thousands of years, literally, at these temples, at these ruins. And they would combine the two. And this was so fascinating because this was, the, for me at least, like one of the quintessential examples of two belief systems kind of coming together and not compromising either's integrity or either's beliefs, but you know, creating this kind of symbiotic relationship or symbiotic happening uh, out of that. But anyhow, as, as I traveled around, and, and I think I was on the road with them for about... Uh, two weeks with the, 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 the llamas. And, you know, I got to be great friends with a couple of them. In fact, one in particular, I actually have a, a picture still hanging on my wall to this day of the two of us uh, outside the hotel as they were getting ready to leave Yucatan. At the time of this assignment, ironically, I was actually very interested in Buddhism. So this gave me a chance to kind of 
explored a little bit more. And I remember one night, it was after dinner, and anyhow, uh, we were all in this really small village, Yucatan village. And it was hot, and it was humid, as, as it is in Yucatan. Anyhow, uh, after dinner, this monk and myself decided to go into this little gymnasium that was next to the school. And oh my God, it was so hot in there. And it was really, really old. It was basically like one of those, those metal Quonset huts uh, that they had converted into a gymnasium. Anyhow, there was a basketball court inside this gymnasium and there was nobody else in there but the two of us. And as fate would have it, there was a basketball there as well. So we decided to shoot hoops and you talk about surreal. Okay, here I am. I'm in a little Mayan village in Yucatan, and I'm there with a Tibetan Lama, and he's dressed in a saffron robe and a shaved head, and there we are shooting hoops. Neither of us really having played basketball, but we're playing basketball now, and again, just shooting hoops, and we started to talk. And at one point, you know, I, I had the ball, and I stopped, and I paused for a moment, and I looked at him, and I said, you know what? I said, I have a bone to pick with you. And I mean, I said it cheerfully. I wasn't being, you know, like, like angry. And then I kind of rephrased a little bit. I said, well, I don't have a bone to pick with you per se, you personally. I said, but I have a bone to pick with this whole thing of, of you, know, you guys, you folks, just as monks. All you do is sit and pray all day. I said, so for you, it's easier, much or much easier to reach enlightenment or nirvana you know, than it is for people who aren't monks and have to go into the workforce every day and, and live in this, this, this greater society with all this stuff that's bombarding them. I said, you live in solitude. And, and anyhow, at this point, he's, as I'm talking, a smile comes on his face. And as I continued to talk, the smile on his face grew more. And finally, there was even a little bit of a laugh. And that's when I paused and I caught myself and I said, okay, what? Because I knew he had something to say. And as if he wasn't calm enough before, his demeanor actually became even more calm before he responded. And he looked at me and he continued with that smile and he said, we don't pray every day, all day to reach enlightenment, to reach nirvana. He said, the reason that we pray all day, every day is to try and maintain the balance in the world between good and evil. And interestingly enough, just as a side note, I found out years later from a friend of mine whose aunt is a cloistered nun in France, and they do exactly the same thing, is that they pray all day, every day, to try and maintain the balance between good and evil in the world. That, to me, is fascinating. Anyhow, back to the monk thing. So, after he answered that question, I was satisfied with that. And then I looked at him and I said, okay, I have another thing that's bothering me. You know, what's that? And he didn't say what's that. He just kind of looked at me in that Buddhist way. And, you know, I understood. But anyhow, I said, okay. I said, a while back, I saw this book. The title of the book was, If You See Buddha on the Side of the Road, Run Him Over. And me, with my Catholic background, I said, yeah, that is absolutely blasphemous, you know. And, and he looked at me again and he paused in that gentle way, and he smiled in that gentle way. And he said, no, you're misunderstanding the meaning of that phrase. And evidently, that phrase is a very common phrase in, in Buddhism. And what it means is, is that as a Buddhist, 
they do not worship the Buddha. The Buddha is merely a, it was merely a person that was a philosopher, basically, or more appropriately, he was a prophet. Anyhow, the point of that, that phrase is, you know, if you see Buddha on the side of the road thing, is that he was a prophet and we are too, or as Buddhists, one should follow the teachings of this prophet, but not worship the prophet himself. And I was like, oh man, wow. I said, Nano thought, well, yeah, that's kind of a harsh way to put it, but at least now it made sense to me. But after all was said and done, after that evening had finished and, you know, a day or two later, I had reflected back upon this. And what I, I, I came away with more than anything, even more so than just the, the pure enjoyment of hanging with him, is that even when I essentially challenged his belief system, when I challenged his faith, he never once felt threatened. He never once got angry or upset or retaliatory towards me. He simply just gave me the answers. And I thought that is such a wonderful way of being. In short, he led by example. And now as I'm reflecting back on this to tell this story, I'm reminded of one other quick situation that I found incredibly fascinating. You know, I had already known that that monks or, or lamas, Buddhist lamas, were vegetarians because of the no-kill thing. And But anyhow, every time we were in a village and a meal was served, being that we were in, in Yucatan, is that meat was served with it. And each of the lamas ate the meat in addition to the vegetables and everything else. And this, again, perplexed me. So at one point when we had some time to talk, I asked the same lama, uh, I said, you know, well, I, I don't understand this. I thought you were vegetarians. And, you know, he smiled that smile and had that comment in me. Anyhow, he said in response, well, yes, we are vegetarians. But if we are served a meal and meat is part of that meal, we eat that because that is the meal itself, regardless of what it contains, is a gift for us. And we accept the gift in its entirety. And if we were to not eat the meat, then we would be denying that gift. And I thought, holy mackerel. So again, it's you know, even though their belief system you know, kind of keeps them as vegetarians, they will still eat meat or whatever it is because they consider it a gift and it would be... I don't know, you know, I, I hate to use the word ill favor because that's, that's, you know, it's kind of an understatement. But to them, it is a, a food, a meal is a sacred gift that is given to them, presented to them, and they eat it. And they don't complain. They don't, you know, kind of bitch about it. They don't make a fuss over it. They simply eat it happily and gratefully. The other experience is when I had the opportunity to live with the Lacandone people. And the Lacandones are the only Maya that were never conquered by the conquistadors because when the conquistadors got back to them, uh, they lived in the rainforest and their, the, the gunpowder that the conquistadors used for their, their guns wouldn't work because of all the moisture. And without their guns, without their gunpowder, they were kind of up a creek without a paddle because they had nothing to fight with. So they just left them there and said, you know what, they're savages, we'll leave them, they'll just die off. Well, they never did, at least not entirely. By the time I got there, there were only about 106 that were remaining. 
one of the things that I learned early on is that, and I use this example a lot, but anyhow, is if you tell a Lacandone something about, let's say, banking in the United States, which, of course, they know nothing about, if you lie about what you're telling them, they will know that you are lying, even though they know nothing at all about banking in the United States. In fact, in the Lacandone Maya language, there is no word for a lie. There's a word for truth, but there is no word in their vocabulary for a lie because it's not possible to lie. So being completely authentic, in other words, going in or interacting with them without having any undisclosed agenda is essential for them to trust you. And if you don't gain their trust, you will never have them open up their culture and their ways and their authentic ways to you. And this matter of unconditional trust is at the foundation of my next story. This is a story that I rarely tell, and I think it's because it was such a special experience for me. I was staying at Nabalone, which is a cultural center in San Cristobal and Chiapas State. And some of you may remember me talking about this place in an earlier episode. Anyhow, one evening, as I was sitting at the communal dining table, and that table seats about 30 people, give or take. Anyhow, beside me at that table sat the elder of one of the Lacandone villages, the village of Lacanha. The two of us had never met before, and neither of us was very proficient in our Spanish speaking, but we did try. He spoke predominantly Lacandone Maya, and I spoke predominantly English. Through much trial and error of this language barrier, I finally came to realize or understand that he was suffering from severe indigestion, essentially. It was a sour stomach of sorts, and he was having great difficulty eating. So I had asked him if he had ever tried peppermint tea, and he shook his head no. And I said, you know what, just give me a moment. And with that, I got up and I went back to my room and I came back and I brought him about five or six tea bags of, of really great herbal peppermint tea. And I, I handed it to him. You know, we talked during dinner and much of the conversation was him trying to teach me Lacandone Maya. And the... <laughs> Uh, the biggest lesson that came out of this impromptu language course was the minute difference in pronunciation of a Mayan word that, pronounced one way, meant zucchini. Pronounced the other way, meant penis. Anyhow, as we had finished dinner and I began to leave the table parting ways with him, he stopped me. And he began to tell me something in a mixture of Maya and Spanish that what I finally realized he was saying is that he was offering me the equivalent of the keys to his village. He offered me to stay in his home any time that I came to visit. And he gave me permission to photograph anything and anyone in his village. He did this because of the tea bags that I gave him. The great lesson here is this. In his world, there is no monetary value placed on a gift. Each gift, regardless of its size or its cost, is a gift of the heart. My gift of tea bags to him was indeed a gift of my heart, and I expected nothing in return. I had no undisclosed agenda. 
His gift to me was his home and the opening of his village to me. Truly, another gift, this time from his heart. From that day forward, I have lived by that lesson. So during this time of year with Thanksgiving upon us, I encourage you to live authentically, especially as you gather with family and or friends. Embrace the day for all that it is set aside to be. Reflect upon your relationships with friends and family and reflect upon all of those things that you can be grateful and thankful for. And as we enter this Christmas season, perhaps consider the gifts of the heart that I talked about. Instead of trying to impress with the biggest or the most expensive gift, give a gift or gifts that are truly meaningful and gifts that express your gratitude for that person being a part of your life and receive by the same. Then, if you feel so inclined, after it's all said and done, drop me a note and let me know how it all worked out. Until next time, thank you once again for joining me and for allowing me to share with you another story from the world. And yes, as always, this episode is copyrighted 2020, all rights reserved. See you next time.